HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. This year marks Heritage Radio's 10th anniversary. Big thank you to everyone who came out to support us last week at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Nice to see you there. If you missed it, it's never too late to support Heritage Radio Network. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, bitter. I'm bitter about a lot of things. The older you get as you come to see the new as silly and the world turns out not exactly as you wanted it to be, you get bitter. You realize that those old guys before you and they're looking at you when you were young, that was bitterness. Life not turning out how you expected, bitterness. Bitterness doesn't have to be negative, however used to that interpretation we may be. I've come to love bitter flavors. Vinegar, Italian espresso, lemon pickle, just about anything pickled, really. And then we come to bitter alcohols. In the 19th century, the French added quinine to alcohol to keep malaria at bay and issued bottles of the stuff to soldiers stationed in tropical colonial locations. Medicinal tasting, for sure. And for those of us that like them, it's nice to have an excuse. They're bracing, mouth-watering, and with the explosion in popularity of bitter liqueurs, it's a great time to be interested in and consuming these once-hard-to-find beverages. Most popular, I find, are the northern Italian flavors and colors. Once made red using the carapace of a beetle, there are now many options out there, and not all of them are made in the boot-shaped country in the Mediterranean. Nestled on DuPont Street in Brooklyn, on the far side of McGinnis Boulevard and co-located with Green Hook Gin, sits St. Agrestus. They're making bitters, amaro, and their signature ready-to-drink Negroni and Spritz cocktails. I visited their soon-to-open tasting room last week to see what they're working on. I was listening to your most recent show. Yeah. Um, is it the 10th anniversary of it is. Heritage Radio This Network? is the 10th anniversary. We just had our gala uh, I, you, on Monday. And it was at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden? Yep. How was it? It was great. I'm sure it was. Um, it was really, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was, the food was, you know, awesome. I mean. It was at the, uh, what, is it, what is that? The Palm House? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it was great. It was a lot great. of fun. So yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Like when you meet somebody on a plane, what's your name? What do you do? So, my name is Louis Catazone. I, uh, I make Italian-inspired spirits and cocktails in, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, awesome. And we are sitting right now in what is going to be the St. Agrestus tasting room? Yes. Um, we are. It's coming, it's coming along. We've been working on it. My brother and I are doing all the work in here for the most part. And we've been, uh, we've been working on it for about a month now. We're probably about three weeks out, believe it or not, from looking around. Cool. Yeah. 
Uh, awesome. I mean, so it is uh, incredibly tall. Yes, it is. Uh, are you? Are there going to be you know like things hanging from the ceiling? Uh, we thought about putting a drop ceiling in and yeah. making it shorter. Yeah. Uh, at least making it seem shorter, and then also covering up all the pipes and everything up there. The problem is we're in a distillery, and it all needs to have sprinkler, and sure. the sprinkler's up there, so we can't cover the sprinkler. Right. Um, so yeah, we're gonna be putting some industrial style lighting up there that's got some like more Edison style feel to sure. it. Sure. Uh, softer lighting than what's in here currently. Yeah. There's gonna be the walls are gonna get covered with not covered covered, but there's gonna be a lot of kind of vintage Brooklyn photography and stuff like ah, that. Very some, neat. Some vintage feeling St. Agrestus posters. Okay. Uh, yeah, and that's going to be going up in um, in the next week or two. I just committed to, like, what style I want it to look. Nice. Frame-wise and so on. I mean, I love the hype, to be honest. I think it's cool. I mean, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago about, like, Greenpoint maintaining this kind of gritty industrial feel, um, and so it certainly feels gritty and Definitely. industrial. Definitely. <laughs> well, there's no way of, of making it not feel gritty and industrial short of spending a lot of money. And um, I, 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 my thing about having the tasting room is, so with, with our license, we have the ability to have a second location. And we could have opened a tasting room anywhere. We could have put one on Bennett oh. Avenue, we could have put one on Court Street, we could have put one on Bedford. We could have put a tasting room anywhere, but I want people to be able to come visit and be in the space where the stuff's actually made. Sure. And I think that there's something to be said about that not like Disney World style tasting room experience, but like the authentic space where there's actual production happening. And yeah, watch your step because that's a hose that that we're using right now. (laughs) Um, I think that's an important part of the overall experience. It's real. Yeah, agreed. And and I think that there's... uh, I think there's a lot to be said about that also just as part of like Brooklyn and manufacturing. And I mean, if I think back to the early days of the Brooklyn Breweries tasting room when, I mean, now it's much fancier sure, and it's beautiful and Maybe it's awesome. And it's, one day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's still in the brewery, but in the old days, their bottling line had to like move out of the way and you'd yep. be sitting at folding tables next to the bottling line. Yep. You know, which is a very, like, that's a, you know, it's, it's legit. It's yeah. Very, our, our pathway here is going to be a, uh, it's going to be guided by pallets. And there'll be pallets of finished goods like what you see over there. So yep. it at least looks nice. It's our boxes that have our yeah. branding on it and so on and so forth. But it'll, uh, it'll, it'll certainly not be walking through a beautiful hallway with museum-style lighting, putting, sh- shedding light onto our brand's history and story and stuff like that. Maybe one day, but not, not yet. Not so, yet. so let's talk about San Agrestis. So for people who mm-hmm. are listening who have not heard of San Agrestis, sure. uh, what do you make? Uh, so San Agrestis has... A, um, a cool portfolio that's kind of broken down into two subsets. So subset number one would be our, our ready-to-drink cocktails, and subset number two, and this is in no particular order, would be in our actual spirits, which are um, Italian-inspired aperitif and digestif at the moment, whereas the, the cocktail side of it has a bottled Negroni and a bottled spritz, um, an aperitivo spritz, Italian style. Um, and so two within the two groups. They have a couple different formats in each of them, sure. but but four overall products, two cocktails, and two spirits. Got it. Yeah. And and the idea, uh, in, a, in what I consider to be a very civilized way, right, in Europe, I feel like they're far ahead of anything that we've done here in the United sure. States and sure, in many sure. other places. Um, you know, the idea is that a aperitif is something you have before dinner, Yes. right? I mean, you should take a break, you should sit down, you should have a drink with your companions that you're dining with, Absolutely. right, before you eat, yep. and then the other end of the meal, right? So I feel like San Agrestis, you guys are kind of like bookending the dining experience. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you put it that way. It's totally, you, you nailed it. I often tell people that they start their meal with our stuff or before the meal, and then they transition into wine, yep. and then they finish the meal with the Amaro. Um, and it, 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 it's fun because, and I think that's sort of what bridges the gap between the wine drinker and the spirits drinker, as far as a brand like San Agrestis and Aperitivo Digestivo culture is concerned. It's that it's, it's not just a whiskey drinker. It's, it, no, I want you to drink wine. I want you to just drink wine in the middle of drinking the aperitivo and finishing with the digestivo. Right. Um, which is a fun place to be as someone who drinks more wine than I do spirits, probably. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So how did St. Agrestis 
come to exist? Like, what was the, what was the inspiration? Did you wake up one morning and decide this is what I want to do? I want to mix botanicals with alcohol and make these things? So yeah, I did, I did wake up one morning thinking <laughs> that, but I actually didn't create St. Agrestis. Now, no one who is currently on the St. Agrestis team created St. Agrestis. St. Agrestis is a, an interesting story. It was created by two sommeliers. Um, they uh, went on a trip to Northern Italy, which is very common with sommeliers, but instead of leaving with just an appetite for the culture and production of wine, they fell in love with regional Amaro. And that was in 2014. They came back and they created an Amaro under the brand St. Agrestis. Uh, I personally had a connection to it by seeing it in back bars, gifting it, buying bottles, gifting it, consuming it at home, sharing it. Um, and then my involvement with St. Agrestis started when I began hearing whispers that the brand was gonna perhaps be disappearing. Uh -huh. There was a little bit of fear in the small but cult-like following that St. Agrestis had that these, that these two sommeliers had created. Um, and over time, uh, with my business partner, Steven D'Angelo, who is the founder of Greenhook Gin, and uh, a couple of other moving pieces, we were able to keep the brand alive and move production of it from Gowanus over here to Greenpoint, where, we, where we've been producing since the summer of 2017. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Um, as far as the production goes, what is the process? It's funny because the process of making Amaro is interesting, and it's funny because a lot of folks, my friends will say, oh, my, my buddy is a distiller. He owns a distillery, and, and that's not the case. I'm not a distiller. Right. Uh, making Amaro is much more like making a lot of individual herbal teas in, in our process. Uh, I individually extract each of the 20 botanicals in San Agrestis Amaro, each of the 17 botanicals in the San Agrestis Inferno Bitter, which is our Campari-style bitter aperitivo. Um, and then soaking, macerating, extracting, all synonyms for, for basically pulling out flavor and aromas from these botanicals, soaking in spirit at different levels of alcohol and for different lengths of time. And that's why the individual extractions occur. It's because each herb is going to want to be soaked in alcohol for a very different length of time. And you could think about something like citrus peel or a cinnamon stick and, and imagine why those two things with totally different permeability and, and density would want to be soaked in spirits at different levels and also for different lengths of time. You're in the distillery right now and it's the first cold day of the year here in New York. It's We're going to get up to 34 degrees outside and in here, what would you say, it's maybe 40 five degrees, yeah. if we're lucky. Um, the distillery doesn't, isn't usually this cold, but it, it does get this cold. And extractions will happen much slower right. when it's this cold. Um, if you're in here in the summer, we have no air conditioning, yeah. and it gets really hot. We have about 20 comfortable days in the distillery all year. Uh, and we just <laughs> had 10, and we'll be lucky if we get 10 more in the spring. Sure. Um, but it's, uh, it's pretty extreme in here. It gets hot quick, and it, it stays cold for a really, really long time. Um, which also helps with, with individual extractions, benefits the flavor and aromatics because we can pay special attention. And just because something extracted in three weeks last time we extracted it doesn't mean it's going to this time. Sure. Based off of the elements in addition to just every other variable that goes into right. extractions. And now, tensions. are all the extractions using the same uh, alcohol as a base? So, yes, but specific to the two different spirits. So St. Agrestis Amaro is um, cane neutral spirit from the U.S. Virgin Islands, whereas St. Agrestis Inferno Bitter is non-GMO corn distillate from here in the United States. Um, each of the 17 tinctures that go into the Inferno Bitter are done with that non-GMO corn distillate. And then each of the 20 tinctures that are individually extracted and blended are for the Amaro are all the um, organic cane distillate. And as far as, you know, I mean, like right now, it's a Wednesday morning, mm -hmm. it's pretty quiet in here. Like, what is the normal, I guess, kind of uh, 
what's the the kind of flow of the day in the distillery? I mean, right. you, obviously, you guys, you know, you're not at a position where it's like there aren't bottling machines clanking away all day long. No, no, there aren't. Um, yeah, it always depends on the day for us because if you were here on a bottling day, that would certainly be happening, yeah. and also I wouldn't be able to be sitting here yeah. with you. But um, <laughs> we, for the most part, Stephen and I both arrive pretty early, uh, and and we. Do you find that hard as someone who also is then out sharing your alcoholic oh, beverages in the evenings before? Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's an ex, it's been an exhausting uh, three years for sure. Uh, it hasn't been even a full three, but it's been an exhausting three years. In that, yeah, I I mean I was at Death and Co. and Amoria Margo. They both have seen Agrestus on the cocktail list. I was out at both of those places last night. There were bartenders who were familiar with the brand from California at Death and Co. I was out later and drinking more than I was hoping to, yeah. especially being that I knew that I had some stuff that I wanted to take care of this morning before we were going to be meeting to, to chat. Um, but yeah, it is a difficult balance. And I think it's something that is particularly surprising for folks who haven't really been on this side of the business, um, especially if they come from a bartending background and then they want to start creating spirits or create a brand of their own. Um, that is a rude awakening in a lot of cases. And, and not to say that it's it, it's just a transitional period. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's whether you're working on a brand side, if it's your brand, or if you're working on the distribution side, they're just totally different lifestyles. Yeah. And it, I, I've seen it with, with dear friends, and sometimes it takes a minute. Sometimes they return to bartending because or, or managing bars or writing lists because that's more their lifestyle. Um, I'll get into like what a regular production day kind of looks like, but one thing that I really try hard to do is get out of the distillery um, late morning, early afternoon. There's a really tight window in this industry for when you can actually go see customers. Sure. Um, bars and restaurants, doors are either locked or all of a sudden, before you know it, it's four o'clock and they're in a, in a pre-shift and they're eating their, eating their family meal. And Walking in during that, I've done it many times. It's not a very comfortable time to walk into a restaurant, yeah. but the doors are usually locked until two o'clock, and then you have until four o'clock to potentially meet somebody if you're lucky and you catch them. Um, as far as sales, I try to be out of the distillery around noon every day and actively saying hello to existing customers and trying to introduce myself to new customers and setting up appointments, and usually that literally means just running around on foot. Um, and that will go till about five o'clock, uh, at which point I'll sit down and have a drink at, at a customer or a prospective sure. customer. Yeah, so then five o'clock comes and you're having a drink with the, at a customer's spot and is that kind of like, you know, does that usually round out your day or then is there kind of then the late night component? Oh man, it, it depends and there's been a lot of the late night. There's less of it now. Uh, there's obviously a tricky balance with health and, <laughs> sure. and it's delicate, but these days I've been... Um, I've been trying to get home between eight and nine at night, and I'm up. I'm up before six every day, uh, and and some of that is getting here and doing production, and some of that is also been travel a lot recently. Other is trying to go for a run or hit the gym before a day of like serious entrenchment with booze begins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tasting usually begins first thing in the morning. It's almost like before before coffee taste. Um, and Because you're tasting the infusions to see where they're at in the process? Exactly. We, we don't pull the botanicals until that extraction is at its perfect point. And, and in every specific instance of that, there's obviously a, an under-extracted period. And then a perfect extracted period, which is pretty brief, and then an over-extracted period. Right. And during the under-extracted, things are muted. During that perfect point, which I've gotten much better at figuring out, um, you know that, okay, this is, this is where it, it, I want it to be. It's where it tastes most flavorful, and it's where it, it smells most aromatic. Um, and then the tail end, things start to become very one-dimensional. You start to lose some of the more nuanced complexities as you leave a botanical soaking in, in spirit for too long. Right. So yeah, it's it's pretty intense to make sure that nothing gets over extracted and 
you find that right point. But you can sort of, there's cues for every specific herb that gives you the idea that, okay, maybe three days from now or four days from now, we're close. We're, we, we could even pull the botanical now, but let's give it two days because I know it's not going to over-extract in two days. Sure. And in two days, it might be even, even more interesting. Right. Subtly, in some instances, in other instances, it's a little bit more drastic depending on the herb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and there's, you can hear a pump in the background there. I don't know yep. if you can hear it through the through the recorder, probably, but yeah. probably that pump is is our most used piece of equipment here in the distillery. Uh, we are constantly moving things from a tank into uh, an extraction vessel, which is all done in stainless steel, and then removing botanicals, pressing the the, the botanicals, which are extracted in muslin bags, which is sort of like just a big, a big tea bag, and then moving those tinctures that have been the concentrated juices back into the individual extraction and then blending and everything is, the pump is moving things to where we're holding because we, we do blend together and age before we bottle the Amargos into, into bourbon barrels, which, which I'll show you before we yeah. walk out of here. As I told you, they're gonna be on this wall back here. Yep. Um, but yeah, the pump is the most used piece of equipment. There's a lot of <laughs> pumping going on. Uh, I mean, that's, to move yeah, that's better than pouring, right? And yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and and there, there has definitely been moments where I was almost literally ladling things. Yeah. And now we're 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 using a a pretty serious and well-engineered uh, German-made pump. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about your the the, the branding, um, which moves all the way into your glass, which was one of the things that first struck me about San Agrestis, um, because a lot of, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it, small brands sure. or startup brands can't afford to do that or don't choose to have their own glass made, and they're using the same shapes as everybody else. So tell me about the choice to kind of go, because I mean, you gotta go kind of, you gotta go long on glass, right? You gotta buy a lot at one time. Yeah, and you can see a lot of it yeah. from sitting there. Um, <laughs> So the, the, the decision to go custom on glass began with the development of the packaging for the Negroni. Got it. I felt as though a generic 100 ml bottle wasn't going to be the right choice to be as eye-catching as I wanted the Negroni to be. And there are volumetric constraints, right? Of course. On what sizes you can put certain things of with alcohol percentages into in this country. In this country, and it varies in Europe, which is also a complication, as now we're looking sure. to European expansion, and, and they want 700 ml bottles, and we have 750 ml yeah. bottles, which there's, there's, of course, ways to make that work. But um, we had a really hard time finding someone to produce the, the Negroni bottle. Um, it was tricky for a number of reasons. There were certain glass brokers and glass manufacturers that had huge minimums that were totally impossible for us to hit. Things like 100,000 bottles. We originally wanted to potentially put the Negroni into a can, and we called Ball Corporation, of course, the famous can manufacturers yep. that they are, um, and they gave me a 500,000 minimum. 500,000 units. 500,000 units to be able to produce a can that's not custom, or that is custom, that's right. not stock. Right. Uh, and they don't produce a 50 ml can for anybody else. So, or I'm sorry, a 100 ml can for anybody else. So asking them for a 100 ml can meant a huge upfront cost for tooling as well as having to commit to 500,000 units. Um, I think that was a... a a blessing in disguise. The Negroni shines because it's in glass and you sure. can see the red liquid yeah. inside it yeah. that is so ubiquitous with the cocktail. Um, so I'm happy that we were priced out and totally, like we couldn't store 500,000. I don't even know where they would go. Uh, so there were some impossible factors that actually I think ended up being better for the overall success of the Negroni versus if we put it into can. But uh, yeah, eventually I, I found um, a glass manufacturer who specializes in manufacturing sake bottles, uh. which are very small in many cases and always intricate and have Japanese uh, 
care and, and meticulous uh, um, attention to detail. So they were not intimidated by the bottle and, and going directly to the glass manufacturer avoided a lot of the potential costs in tooling that a lot of these glass brokers charge. Um, mold fees can be extremely expensive to get a custom mold. Sometimes you have to spend $20,000 and they can build that into the price of the bottle in many cases, but you have to spend $20,000 just to get a mold made in many cases. Right. We, we, by going direct to the glass manufacturer, uh, avoided a lot of the really restrictive startup costs of going custom with the glass. But I did think that having a custom bottle was important specifically because of the categories that I play in. Mm. Um, a brand like St. Agrestis needs to sit on the shelf next to the ancient and well-known Italian and European in general alternatives that people already know yeah. and stand out. Sure. So being in a bottle that in and of itself is part of the brand is um, something that I wasn't willing to bend on for, for St. Agrestis. Yeah. It wasn't easy, though. Yeah. yeah. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Namwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the like ready to drink cocktail okay. market. All right. Um, you know, it's something that I feel like 10 years ago you didn't really see. Right, you saw it a little bit in Europe. You saw it in Japan. Sure. Right, canned highballs have been a thing in Japan for a very long time. Um, but in this country, you didn't really see that. You didn't. You couldn't go to a store and buy a gin and tonic in a can that you could just crack open like a beer. And now you can. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting explosion of the ready to drink cocktails here in the U.S. And it's not something that I necessarily foresaw. I don't necessarily think. I didn't get into the, the pre-made cocktails because I saw this huge trend towards an explosion in popularity of pre-made cocktails. What I saw was the opportunity for there to be sort of a two-way brand awareness experience within my products. So right. to make a Negroni using my bitter aperitivo so that people knew when that bitter aperitivo was released that they already like it in the Negroni. Now sure. you can go make it at home right. using a, a gin of your choice or a vermouth of your choice instead of what I've already chosen to put into the Negroni that I pre-bottle. Pre yeah. um, the spritz we released this summer, and that was a really difficult thing for us to get off the ground, specifically due to carbonation. We're mm. set up really well for still products here, but... Carbonation and pressure is not just difficult, it's scary, it's dangerous. Sure. Um, so 
we launched the Spritz much later than we expected. We were hoping to have the Spritz launched in spring of 2018. We didn't launch it until June of 2019. Oh, wow. So it's been, it's been really difficult, but the Spritz is made with a different aperitivo that we also produce, one that's less bitter, less geared towards a Negroni or the Campari consumer, and one that's a little bit lighter, a little bit more citrus-driven, rounder, that's more driven towards spritz or the Aperol drinker. Sure. Um, we, we're pretty firm believers that, uh, that those two types of spirits, a bitter aperitivo and a more citrus-driven, spritz-driven aperitivo, uh, the middle ground in there ends up creating interesting spritzes, but not very good Negronis. Mm. And in the development of the Inferno Bitter, we had a lot of fun creating more and less bitter spritzes. But the, the Negroni was always with the bitter nature of the Inferno, bit, of the Inferno Bitter. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessarily been to my benefit or, or not. We are, a lot of the, so our, our, our bottled cocktails retail for somewhere between six and seven dollars a piece uh, for a cocktail bar quality Negroni. That seems like a pretty fair deal, especially yep. in a place like here in New York where sure. you can't spend less than fourteen dollars. I, mean, I, I was at Pouring Ribbons last night and had a delicious drink. It was sixteen bucks. And we weren't far from each other. We should have met no, up. I know. Um, <laughs> we, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of cocktails that have hit the U.S. market or are being produced here that are way cheaper. Yeah. They're way lower in alcohol. My Negroni is 24% alcohol. It's a proper cocktail bar quality Negroni with all the components, all the booze, all the bitterness that yep. people are looking for in that. Whereas there's been a lot of things that have hit the U.S. market that are like 5% alcohol and... Um, not necessarily claiming to be a Negroni, which makes sense because it can't claim to be a yep. Negroni at 5%, but much more affordable sure, and kind of serving a totally different purpose, but sort of lumped into the same category. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. I, I feel like the I'm very interested in the idea of the uh, ready-to-drink craft cocktail, right? Because when you go to a place like Amoria Margo or you go to a place like Dev & Co. or Pouring Ribbons, you're going not to buy a drink you can make at home, right? Like, totally. if you are at the Jersey Shore and you are out and you're getting, like, a Red Bull and Coke, or, I mean, it's like a rum and Coke, or, yeah, like, yeah. A, you know, Red Bull and vodka, yeah. you're not going there because the bartender is doing anything other than taking those two things and putting them in a glass, which you can do at home. Of course. Right? Yeah, you're there totally. for a different reason. Totally. When you go to a bar for a craft cocktail, you're going because that bartender or that... Uh, person who crafted those drinks is doing something there that while sure if you were to study it and you had a giant back bar at home you could make it home but most people don't and I think that there's a big difference there I mean I you know I recently was at a party uh, and you know there was in the cooler there was beer there was wine there was cider and there was hard seltzer and I looked at it and I was like what like I can go buy shitty vodka and seltzer and mix them together, and it's not going to cost me whatever that cost you, you know, <laughs> like three, four dollars a can. Yeah, retail. Yeah, the, the explosion of hard seltzer, I, I feel like, is a totally, and specifically here in New York, because it's not sold in the same places. It's sold in in those in grocery and in, in yeah. places where beer is sold because okay, it's yeah. I, it's I think registered as malt. Mm -hmm. um, so I totally separate what we make from hard seltzers in particular, For sure. uh, but. Yeah, I've, I, I guess I just mean more as like something that is ready to drink that is mixed with alcohol rather than something like a beer or a wine, which is a fermented thing that then is put into the package. Yes. Um, it's, it's been – I've never had a hard seltzer. One Don't was one was, <laughs> one was offered to me at, a, at a, uh, a little gathering I was at on Saturday, and I, I politely declined. I um, – <laughs> I'm not too good for a hard seltzer, sure. Uh, but I don't drink vodka soda in general. So right. drinking a hard seltzer, maybe I should try it just to know what it's like. But again, this is a question that I was asked a whole lot when I first launched the Negroni or when other cocktails that were pre-batched and packaged were released into the market. Like, oh, did you tr have you tried um, the Cutwater cocktails in a can? Have you tried the Novo Fogo Caparina in a can? 
know. Because what does me knowing what Novo Fogo's Caparina in a can benefit me in the process of developing a perfectly balanced Negroni in a bottle? Right. It's a totally different thing. So I haven't had many of the prepackaged cocktails because it doesn't necessarily change my approach as it pertains to my spritz in a bottle or my Negroni in a bottle. I want, I drank a lot of spritzes, I drank a lot of Negronis. I wanted to create the best version of those two drinks on a large scale and fill them into little packages. Um, I could write a dissertation on why a pre-batched Negroni is in many cases, and definitely not in all cases, better than a freshly made single serve Negroni where you're measuring in a one ounce jigger equal parts and pouring it and mixing it up and serving it. Um, you can't see if you're 5% off in a, in a one ounce jigger. Most people can't. Right. Sure. But you could taste it. I'm not 5% off. I'm never 5% right. off. I measure to the exact tenth of a gram um, and in thousands of liters at a time. I say this often. I'm not sure if it's 100% true, but I make either the world's biggest or one of the world's biggest Negronis once a month. Right. And then I fill it into little bottles for everyone else to enjoy. Sure. And that's, it's sharing my huge batch Negroni that is at the core of what I do. Nice. Yeah. So uh, you grew up in New Jersey. I did. Uh, Your father was born in Italy. Yes. Were these kinds of flavors, aperitivo and digestivo, and like, was that part of your growing up? Did you see these things at family gatherings and stuff? Absolutely. Um, as far as Amaro is concerned, every one of my family had a specific Amaro from Calabria called Amaro Silano. And Amaro Silano, you could find here in the U.S., but not super common. Um, it wasn't available in the U.S. for a long time, so my family would, would suitcase it uh-huh. back from Calabria. When my father moved here in 1979, um, and his, his parents came as well, he, they didn't sell the house in Calabria. So every, my grandparents basically split time between being here in, in the U.S. and being back over in Calabria. My grandfather was never really happy about the move once he got here. So, and he never, he never learned English. Huh. Um, he just, he was kind of always hoping to be in Calabria when he was here sure. and in Calabria when he was there. So yeah, there was an Amaro called Amaro Solano that was on every, and after, we did Sunday dinners at my nonina and my nonino's home every single Sunday. And in very Italian-American fashion, there was a, and still is, um, the house is up for sale at the moment, but there still is a kitchen in the basement. Um, uh. And all the frying of any fried food happened in the garage, and it was, it was that very typical Italian-American, except with a lot of Italian actually being spoken. And more so than <laughs> Italian, it was Calabrese dialect, which sure. I thought was Italian for most of my life. And then I started speaking it to Northern Italians and they had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> but that definitely was part of my culture. And my, my nonino poured me an Amaro at Sunday dinner, probably when I was seven or eight years old. And he didn't pour a lot, but he poured a little bit when no one was looking, slid it across the table and I tried it. Um, we, we didn't grow up drinking Coca-Cola or Sprite. It was something that my father didn't want in the house. Um, but we did, and in hindsight, it's not like there's a lot less sugar in any of these things, but we, would, we grew up drinking San Bitter, Quinoto Soda, sure. things like that. And I'd have friends come over, and they'd ask for a Coca-Cola, I'd hand them a Quinoto Soda, and they'd spit it out. Right. Like, this is so bitter, <laughs> it's gross. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, I would go to these friends' houses, and I'd be like, wow, Coca-Cola's so good, it's so sweet. Sure. I would think it was sweet, but it was also like because I couldn't have it, I wanted to drink it. Right. Um, so in, interestingly, it wasn't about for your father uh, assimilation. It was about sort of maintaining the old culture from Italy. Yeah, and, and my father is not an old man. Um, I mean, he's he's getting older, but he is and has always been very traditional. He's the oldest of seven siblings. When he was 14, he had to move from Calabria up to Alto Adige and work in construction so that he can help support the family. He's been sort of a hardworking adult 
since he was a kid. Right. And that has caused him to be much more traditional in many ways than even his siblings who are a few years younger. Uh, so yeah, he, he's stubborn, as many Italians are. Uh, he's proud. And part of that pride and stubbornness does get translated and passed down in cultural elements that we were brought up with. Like going to school with a super sada sandwich and the other kids making fun of us because it smelled bad. Yeah. Um, and we sure. were like, but it's delicious. Yeah. Uh, and you're eating peanut butter and jelly and mine's a super sada and like fresh provolone sandwich. Uh, so we, we grew up in, in an oddly old school way considering, you know, it was the 90s in New Jersey. Right. Um, and we weren't in like a super first generation or it- Italian immigrant sure. town. Yeah. There weren't many of them left at that point. Right. Yeah. So, you know, as, as we sit here and I think about uh, sort of how does one incorporate that sort of like aperitivo, digestivo thing into the way that we eat now, right? And, and you know, I, it, it always comes up for me around Thanksgiving. Sure. Being a huge meal. So, you know, do you have recommendations for, like, a good aperitivo and a good digestivo for an American Thanksgiving meal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am hard-pressed to say, while I do drink many of the Romari, and I do think, depending on the time of year and the celebration and whatever, the mood, the weather. Uh, there's other Amari that are perfect for every... There's so many Amari that one's perfect for every night. It's cold out today. It was super cold last year here in New York on Thanksgiving, if yeah. you remember. There was no better end-of-meal drink than St. Agrestus Amaro, just on its own, on a cool Thanksgiving. If it's 60 degrees on Thanksgiving, which with the weather we have today in New York, it's very possible. It could be in the mid-60s on Thanksgiving, even though it's as cold as it is today. Uh, Maybe I would want to drink something that was a little bit lighter than St. Agrestus Amaro. But specifically, when it's this cold, St. Agrestus Amaro, and I think based off of the flavor components and all of the other flavors that you're consuming on Thanksgiving, specifically with desserts, the flavor profile of St. Agrestus Amaro is the ultimate holiday, including Thanksgiving and, and the December holidays. It's the ultimate digestivo or Amaro for those specific instances. On the aperitivo side, there's so many fun options because it's less pure, in my opinion. A digestivo is almost always like, okay, drink straight up grappa right. or straight up Amaro or sip on a port. And all of those things are, are super delicious, but they're very, they're very pure and, and not mixed. Whereas on the aperitivo side, there's just a world of options. Uh, this is obviously very self-serving, and I've drank many other aperitivi during... I like drinking a pomo during... Or a pomo spritz or a pomo with soda water, depending on the sweetness of it. Pomo and tonic or a sherry and tonic on Thanksgiving before the meal. Ooh, sherry and tonic. Delicious. Yeah, it's a great way to get the meal started, too. There's a nuttiness about it and a warming component to it, but it's still light and refreshing and food-friendly. But on the St. Agrestis side, uh, my favorite aperitivo cocktail, and it works particularly well during transition seasons. So before it's super cold out, I think drinking what I call an Amaro Cano before a meal is super fitting. And the Amaro Cano just replaces sweet vermouth in, in a classic Americano uh-huh. with St. Agrestis Amaro and maintains the Inferno bitter as the bitter aperitivo, poured in equal, in equal parts and then topped with soda water. It takes a really rich and, and spice-driven, robust digestivo like the Amaro and makes it, like I said, much more food-friendly and, and more of a classic aperitivo-style cocktail. And it, it has all the, the nuts and bolts that you're looking for in an aperitivo with some bitterness, but also a lot of those really relevant seasonal spices that we're looking to consume during the fall. Cool. Um, any new or additional uh, batched cocktails that you guys are working on? On the batched cocktail side, probably not. Okay. Um, the Negroni is really just the flagship? The Negroni is the flagship. The Spritz yeah. didn't have a full spring and summer 
this past year because it did launch in June. So I'm really excited to see what we can do with the spritz and, and get it into more people's homes and, and coolers during the, the yeah. warmer weather as we get back towards that. But the folks ask me if I'm going to make a Boulevardier or if I do a Mescal Negroni. And those are cool concepts, but they're not inherently Italian. Sure. And one thing that I am really adamant about in the production of St. Agrestis and the brand's overall identity is that it maintains a specifically Italian identity. And obviously, it's Italian-American being that it's made here. Yeah. But uh, there will never be an old-fashioned from St. Agrestis. Um, even something as close to the Negroni as a Boulevardier. Delicious cocktail. I love them. The Inferno Bear works really well in it. I mix them up all the time. But... Um, on the pre-made cocktail side, I think it's really important for me to focus on the two um, really most important cocktails in Italian culture, culinary culture and, and beverage culture. And there's a lot more people that need to be aware of these before it's time to introduce a potential third cocktail into that mix. Sure. Yeah. And then what about on the Amaro side? Yeah, there's we're always playing with Amari. Right. I mean, that's a whole, you know... That, 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 I feel like, is a wide-open totally. opportunity, right? Totally. To vary what you're including in them. Um, you know, somebody, when I was telling them I was coming to interview you, asked if you guys made a Nocino. It's an interesting concept. I have said for a long time that I have no interest in making a nut liqueur or a fruit liqueur. If we do one day, maybe. Um, right now, I'm not really interested in that. There are some delicious Nocinos being made and I quite enjoy drinking them. I enjoy the stories around them. There are a lot of very traditionally produced ones that are being reinvigorated or produced in Italy again and being introduced back into the U.S. And I think they're fantastic specifically also on those Thanksgiving and Christmas time holidays or holiday gatherings even. But no, we're, we're, we're not working on a Nocino. We're, we're not working on a, a Limoncello, which, of course, here in the U.S., because so many of the Italian-Americans here come from that Campania region where they drink so much more Limoncello, right. the Italian-Americans think that Limoncello is the most... In many cases, they think it's the only digestivo in Italy because of the strong culture that it's kind of, that's kind of been imported from Campania here. Sure. Um, but... Uh, it's it's not so much my passion. I also don't want to inundate the market with a lot of things. I want people to, again, like I said, I think there's still so many people who need to try the Inferno Bitter and try the Amaro. Yeah. We're working on some other stuff. We now have a tasting room that we're building, and yeah. we'll be able to showcase some new things. Um, but for the in the immediate future, there might be a, another aperitivo that comes out. Um, that Paradiso aperitivo that goes into the spritz will eventually be released. We waited a whole year between releasing the Inferno Bitter after releasing the Negroni, and that proved to be one of the... There was built-in demand for the Inferno Bitter because people liked the Negroni. Sure. So as soon as it launched, people were already familiar with it as a component in a cocktail that they had been drinking, which was a, a fun approach. I'm hoping that that approach will work as well with the, with the spritz, and people say, okay, I wanna make, I'll make my spritzes at home. I like drinking yours if I don't have a bottle of Prosecco at home or if I'm going to the park or the beach. But if I'm having a party, I'd like to buy a bottle of your aperitivo and a couple bottles of Prosecco and make my spritzes. So that's definitely the next and most immediate thing. We just launched a 50 ml tomorrow, so a new, a new format, new size. I'm gonna give you one as a, as a, as a oh, thanks for coming through. Thank you. Of course, easy enough. Um, but some other interesting formats on what we already produce is more the focus I, I mean, I, I do love the small size, and I feel like there is something to that, um, especially, I mean, I, what I love to do, I mean, it, you know, it reminds me, it's not the same, obviously, different culture, but similar idea, but like Underberg, right? Totally. Comes only in those tiny little bottles. I mean, those are, I think those are 20? 20, 20 or 30? 20, 20. I think 20. Yeah, they're yeah. really small. They're, they're tiny. Um, but I love the idea that at a meal, like a Thanksgiving, you can buy a couple cases of those little Things, whether it's those or whether it's a tiny Burnett or now Yuramaro, mm -hmm. and you can put one at every place. Yeah. Or you can bring them out on a tray at the end of the meal with the pie. 
or whatever it is. And everybody gets one. It's not, you're not pouring, everybody just gets their own. Yeah, there, there's something fun about that, especially with a DJ ski for something that's not being mixed. It's not like you want to pour it into a snifter. You could, but you don't need yeah. to. Um, it's, it's fun to be able to have a, an Amaro come out. And, and exactly, I like, I, that's a very romantic, I'm picturing it now. And it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds amazing. A tray of pie and Saint Augustus tomorrow. Yep. I yep. think that would work. I, I, I'm, would I'm work. getting. I'm, I'm getting ready for it. Yeah, I love I'm that. Do it. I love that. Love that. Um, very cool. Well, people can find out more about what you're doing at SaintAugustus.com. Yes. Um, Stagrestis.com. We just changed it from Saint spelled out dash Agrestis.com. Stagrestis. Both sites are up. If you end up on one, you'll yeah. get redirected to the other. But yeah, stagrestis.com or on Instagram, where we're pretty active at st underscore agrestis. Um, and then as far as buying the product, right now, are you only distributed in New York? No, um, we're, we're distributed outside New York for sure. We, our, our second strongest market will be California, and we're, we're, we're wow. pretty well distributed out in California. My brother left his job in corporate America, it, it, not super corporate, but corporate America to come work for us in June, no, July of 2018. He's been out there since then, Got getting it. the brand out there. So we, we have a strong presence in California, but we're in 15 states. Nice. Um, we're, we're, we're just beginning to do some business outside the U.S. and British Columbia and some other Canadian markets, as well as Japan. And then 2020, looking towards some European expansion as well. We've had a lot of interest. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time away from getting the tasting room ready. Um, and so rough estimate will open for New Year's? Uh, hopefully Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, all yeah, right. I, Thanksgiving I think, 2019. Yeah, Thanksgiving 2019. We're, we're, it's not going to look much, much different from this, but there'll be a table and some other stuff in here. So cool. Thanksgiving weekend, Saturday and Sunday will be open, I think, for, for some tours and some tastings here, here in Greenpoint. Brad, thank you. Amazing, thank you. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find out more online at saintagrestis.com. That's S-T-A-G-R-E-S-T-I-S.com. You can follow them on Instagram at S-T underscore Agrestis. And you can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach out to me if you have any questions. Email me, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.